You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 71 is Aaron David Gleason. He was born into show business, started his career in L.A. with a very successful band called All Hours in the aughts, released a lengthy and meticulous solo debut, quit music, moved to New York, became an actor, and he is now releasing his first album in seven years called Rye Observer, and you are now listening to its opening track, The Last to Die in Battle. We're going to be talking about the title track from that album, as well as Brooklyn at Dawn, and then look back to his days with All Hours with their 2004 song Box Office Stud. We'll conclude by listening to Bright Lights from his self-titled 2010 album. For more information, check out AaronDavidGleason.com. For more information about this podcast, visit NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic to support our efforts. So we will have started with a little of The Last to Die in Battle, the opening track from your your new album, Rye Observer. Yes, sir. That goes straight into the song that we're going to talk about first, the title track. Do you want to give us some introductory words before we play it in full about this album project and this song in particular. Well, this song, Rye Observer, is the title track of the album. I wrote this song following or chasing a little bit of a Paul Simon song called I Do It For Your Love. Now, the end result is totally different than that. But I wanted to do something that pushed myself chords-wise and once I had put this together, my producer, Brad Lindsay, said, what do you think about making it a little bit funky? And he gave me some ideas. And I said, you know what? I should not be locked in stone with my sort of preliminary idea. Let's go after this. And I think it suited it very well. And it's basically a song about, after a lot of years in LA, coming to New York, dead on arrival, and being resuscitated by New York and uh, also the woman I came to marry.
I'm glad you say that Brad was the one who's at fault for the funkiness. I appreciate it now, but when I was just listening through the whole album, it almost sounded a little out of place. This was not my favorite track. I'm glad, though, that you picked it to get me to listen back to it a bunch of times until I could say, okay, I get what you're doing here. But it's just a little more in the Steely Dan camp, I guess, than a lot of your more guitar-oriented stuff. Even though, obviously, it's still guitar-oriented, but it's what you're doing with the guitars is the issue. Yeah, I mean, it's different. I can't say, for instance, that I'm the biggest Steely Dan fan either, (laughs) but I do appreciate how the musicianship, the jazzy nature that they bring to rock and roll and how they expanded a lot of people's minds that way. Obviously, the lyrics, it's a whole other conversation too. And I've gotten that a lot with this song. People have mentioned Steely Dan many, many, many times in regards to this song in particular. I also really love Elvis Costello, and I think that wickedly changing between verses and choruses the way he does is an inspiration. I think that we were maybe after somewhat of a similar approach with this song. I think Elvis Costello plus Steely Dan equals Joe Jackson is the way. Hey, man. Yeah, stepping out. I love Joe Jackson. Absolutely. So when you put this together originally, like how much of this signature beginning riff are you, you playing just the rhythm there and somebody else, you got a lead player that, how did this band actually come together? Is this Brad's people or is this people you were playing live with? Yeah. So what happened was I took a long time off from songwriting. Brad has been a good confidant and friend all these years. And he said, listen, you know, I know you took some time off to unplug and replug in your modem of being an artist. Where are you now? Are you ready to make an album? And I said, you know what? I think I have enough songs together to make an album. And he said, where do you want to make the record? And I said, anywhere but LA or New York. I need to get out of myself. I need to be able to breathe. And I need to have no distractions since I have rampant, incurable ADD. And so he said, come down to Nashville. So I went down to Nashville and he got this band together with, let's see, the drummer, Marshall Vore. He's out on tour with Phoebe Bridgers right now. Very talented guy understated drummer, but very funky and quirky. Nick Bearden, who's played with Jamestown Revival, muscular bass player, heavy fingers. And Brad, who is an incredible player, who's played with a lot of different people. And we had basically two rehearsals for this album. Brad arranged a lot of these songs. I had a a little input too, but I'll give him the lion's share of saying taking my demos, which I sent him on recordings off of an iPhone, one track, just here you go. I don't want to add embellishment. I want you to take it to the next level. And he really did. So he took this song, which was going to be a quiet pastoral ballad and made it all the things that we've been talking about, you know, Joe Jackson, Steely Dan, that kind of approach. Just to focus on one little element of that, this transition going out of the chorus. I'm here and I'm barely 
So I can just imagine, you know, if I came up with that and I'm trying to teach my band that, like, and you got to play this thing in unison, like, I would have to circle back to it at like three different rehearsals to like nail, make them remember what was the thing. Oh, just go to the next court. Like, so is that something that you just showed up and like they more or less had this worked out or were able to get that right then? Or did you have that melody in your mind? Hey, do a do, 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 you know, that kind of thing. I'll give that completely to Brad. I mean, I wrote all the chords for this song and it was sequenced the way that it was. That was me. And I'm sure that this song has the most chords in it of any (laughs) song on the album and is maybe the most complex. But that turnaround that you're referring to, that is 100% a Brad thing. And I got to hand it to these guys, Nick and Marshall. They got it. And once they got it, they nailed it every single time from that first rehearsal on through recording. You know, And we recorded this album in the rhythm tracks in two days for 10 songs. And they were all live takes. We did not cobble this thing together. And I've done that many times with albums, and there's nothing wrong with it. But these guys are incredible. And I'm not hyperbolizing or overstating that in any way. So just one other arrangement element. I mean, did you listen and say, you know, meet a bunch more woodblock, put a bunch of... Or was that part of his kit that that was just one of the things that came out? I like how closely you listen, man. We put together the rhythm tracks in two days and then Marshall came in a third day. Everybody was digging the hang of the album too, which is always a good sign when you're recording that people want to come by and loiter. You want that. And we're sitting around and we noticed that the studio Sputnik Sound had a lot of funky stuff lying around. You know, one thing was this gigantic drum that we actually managed to get on a few songs. And that we had this weird wood block. It's not a normal one, and I'm not a percussionist, so I can't tell you exactly what it was. It was more like a clacker thing. We said, get in there. He took that in, and it made the final cut. In terms of your vocal performance here, how many of these nuances were there in your demo versus, okay, now we've got this funky thing, so I'm going to play it up. I'm going to I'm gonna ham it up a little bit. There's one line in particular I wanted to... It's the second line of the first verse. Put to some blocks from the flat iron, are you going to change my mind? I know you don't come up dangerous. So the little, the flat iron, keep going on on it. So exactly where does that come in? I mean, that seems like the kind of thing that when you're bored with the song, and so you add that like after you've been playing it live for a while, or was that in the initial conception? The song is a bit jazzy. It's probably one of the jazzier songs on the record. I wouldn't even claim to be a jazz artist in any way, shape, or form, but there is some in there and that I, I really love. And it just seemed natural in the moment. Like I've said, it started as a pastoral ballad and ended up being this funky, fun thing. And I really believe that you have to continue to push, 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 push until the very last minute when you're ready to conceive the song. And so I was excited having a good time when we got to the point where we were recording the vocals for that. And it just came out. It really was not premeditated. And we decided it was good enough to keep it on there. So when you're recording vocals on a song like this, like how many takes would you do? Once you've established this thing, and I'm going to take a few risks, like it would be very easy to go over the top. And so I often get to a take that you think is good and then kind of fuck it up further. (laughs) 
and see if that's just embarrassing or, and you know, you should go back to the take that you, that was good or whether something inspired comes out. Yeah. You and I were talking about the album I made before this, which was kind of a slash between an EP and an album, but that's neither here nor there. It had some songs on it that are really different stylistically. And I, I like them a lot. It's very different than this album. That album was cobbled together piecemeal. And I think I probably put down, I don't know, a zillion vocal takes on those things because we were putting it together that way, that cut and paste way that even some of my favorite artists make songs. Like Beck, for instance, I know in the past has made certain songs that way. But this album, because of the time constraints and we were going for something honest and natural, that didn't happen. So I might have done five or six passes all the way through the song basically on every song you know we would go with the best takes or you know put a couple takes together if there was a line that didn't work or not but it was really straight up that was the whole point of the methodology workflow of this album to be as straight up as possible doesn't mean that i won't go back to doing something else in the future but you ask about vocal takes probably four or five per track. Well, let's talk about the lyrics some and the, even just calling it this, like there's no, I'm a rye observer. You know, there's <laughs> that line doesn't come in here. Was that because you'd already decided on that for the album and it wanted to attach it to something or that's just a thematic. How are these things connect here? This is very good detective work. I'm not being sarcastic. You're nailing me to the wall here. So I have to answer you honestly. <laughs> or say it would ruin the effect if I answered you honestly. And so we'll go on to the next topic. That's fine. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not going to get all Van Morrison and, and grumpy on you. I, I like the questions. How dare you ask me that question? Yeah, Rye Observer. I, I want this album to be honest. In the past, I went by a nom de plume, Gilly Leeds, in my first band, All Hours. That was all about artifice, right? And now at this point in my life, turning over a new leaf and writing these songs, I want to be straightforward. So what do I do? What is the action that I perform? I'm a writer, and I'd like to think I can make Rye observations that will entertain people will maybe elucidate things to some people from time to time, maybe educate if I can be so arrogant and bold. But anyway, that was going to be the title of the record. And I was writing this song and it was a lyric in the song. And then it seemed like I was shoehorning uncomfortably a word into the song. So I took it out, but I didn't change the title of the song. So there's your very honest answer to why the song retained its title, even though the phrase is not mentioned in the song. The title itself sounded like, you know, maybe somebody wrote it in review of you or something. You're like, yeah, I could do that. I'd be honored if somebody called me a Rye Observer. Now you've ruined it. They won't do yeah. it now. <laughs> Actually, that's what lazy writers are doing throughout. That'll be the title of this episode as well. So there you go. Fantastic. <laughs> Although this song, it's not an observational thing about society in particular. Right. Tell a little more about what this song in particular is. Yeah, this song, I never bought into Love at First Sight. I'm paraphrasing the beginning of it, but I saw this uh, woman and I uh, looked in her eyes and there was something honest. There was a spark. There was a sassiness. <laughs> there was an intelligence. And I had just arrived in New York and I had had the first 10 years of my career, starting very young in LA, sort of come crashing down, and I felt awful. It felt like my career was over, and I was still <laughs> quite young. So I came to start over in New York, and I met my wife really early on, 
I don't know where I would be without that, not to be too sentimental, but it definitely resuscitated me and gave me uh, hope again. And, and also, as an artist, reinvested me in the arts, the New York acting scene, the musical theater scene here. And it's just talking about that transitional time of feeling the lowest of low coming out of LA and starting over here and what that was all about. And maybe she wryly observed me and assessed the damage and did something about it. And the chorus here, I can see that more in the what you describe as the original tone of the song. I've written plenty of songs that have at least the sentiment, if not the actual words, if I'm barely alive, when you're sort of feeling like that. But then doing it over a feel good kind of funk thing that this turned into is a nice little juxtaposition. I'm sure that you also know, if not like an artist, for instance, like Lou Reed. Lou Reed could write like the happiest chord progression with the darkest lyric or the darkest chord progression with the happiest lyric. And I always thought that that kind of thing is combustible and fun as a listener. So I'm all for it. You know, when he suggested, let's take it out of I do it for your love range and put it into, you know, whatever we've been talking about range. I said, hell yes. Good. That was the last thing I ever thought about. So let's do it. Let's get our second song on the table here. So Brooklyn at Dawn, I had heard a demo version of this earlier from your previous release. So this has been floating around for a while. Can you give us a little intro before we play it? Oftentimes I try to write songs in one pass, starting with absolutely nothing. I hit the record button and I say, oh shit, in my head. And I just try and make something up just for the hell of it to see if I can scare myself into it. I'd say I write a song that way maybe one time out of, I don't know, three or 400 tries. It's a fun practice. It doesn't bear much fruit. This time, this song came out basically what you hear, one take, just made up on the spot. Long walk home in Brooklyn, I don't know. 
So the main thing, it's got a nice straight ahead, simple piano thing. Although then that piano thing comes back later with a few added notes. When you're saying you, you did this in one take, like was that sitting in front of piano in one take? Or is this just, yeah. you know, with vocals talking into your phone in one take? Oh, no. Yeah, I sat down at the piano. I didn't have anything. I hit the record button and, you know, I started in G flat and moved up to B flat. And then there's this kind of like D diminished chord. And I thought, oh, we started there. And then a kind of sound came out of my mouth. And at the time, this is around the time when I first moved to New York as well, that I wrote this song. I was walking around aimlessly (laughs) at this time in the morning. and, And you get this harsh reality of your place in the world by the sobriety of the daylight, that early morning dawn daylight. And that's what came out in the lyric. Uh, I refined the lyric afterwards, after I'd sort of achieved the form of the song. But it basically always was about, you can't fool yourself with self-mythology or bluster at that hour in the morning when you're worn out and worn down and the day is starting and people are going to work and you don't have work at the time and you don't have a lot at the time. And it's a communication between me and a fictitious person about um, my place in the world. Okay, so it's not the the second person is talking to yourself, which is usually the way when I pray like that. That's what that means. It's not myself in this case, in this song, but it's not a defined single person either. It's maybe another writer, another artist. How are you getting by? That's maybe a little bit closer to who I'm speaking with there. And also the advice that I'm giving them If you haven't made a decision about who you are, you better make it now, which is something this song is about. I'm also saying it to them because I need that advice. (laughs) Now, some of the phrasing, like I can see how that would come out more easily if you're actually playing the chords rather than you're writing on paper, right? You say you're undecided, you don't know where you belong, somewhere I can find you. And the next line is not because you are gone or something, you know, it's just gone. Even the way the initial riff comes, well, in this case, it's the drums you end up hearing. You know, it just reinforces the groove more because you've played your dun dun dun. You played your third chord, and then it just has this hole there. Somewhere I can find you, gone. So you've left holds at a couple places, which really helps the mood along. Well, and that's you know, why we included it. And that's why, you know, you heard a demo of it on my website. And there was something about that that wouldn't happen if I started writing it, thought these are cool chords, and then went to a coffee shop and wrote the lyrics. It would happen exactly like what you are saying. You know, it wouldn't just be gone. Gone is a way better impulse than because you are gone. Gone is way more refined than because you are gone melodically, let alone as a writer. And that's why I do that exercise, because I get out of my own way that way. Yeah, even the riff, I mean, it's like the course is actually instrumental, that you've got these, the riff is the main thing, and now I'm going to add a little vocal tagline to kind of get you to the next line here, but that it's more appreciating, you know, like the gazing on the dawn or whatever, you know, appreciating the the sound of the piano itself. If you didn't have an actual piano in front of you that sounded nice, (laughs) right? if you're working on a little cheesy electronic thing with your headphones, the same thing doesn't quite come out. Yeah, and I try and put myself in different positions as a writer. I mean, of course, I have my J45 that I love to write, you know, on and I have my piano and all of that stuff. 
it sounds crazy, but go to somebody else's house and sit down at the piano. What do you come up with there? Don't discount it. Go with that. Pick up a bad sounding, hard to play acoustic guitar and go with that. You'll come up with things that you would never come up with otherwise. Instead of like discrediting it, like I used to do in the past, I say, no, this is great. And I hold on to it. <laughs> yeah. With, with guitars, you can always just try a different tuning, do something slightly different with a piano. You just have to rely on the fact that everybody's piano is out of tune. <laughs> yeah, much. totally. And sometimes that's inspiring. Sometimes uh, they have different, you're in a house, it's reverberant or you're in a place that's totally dry. Yeah. Pianos can range all over the place in terms of the emotional capacity they have <laughs> you know now it seems natively just judging by our first and third songs here you write very concise little songs just get it out there and this one likewise actually doesn't have that many lyrics but you gave it the space so you could have the giant build which really works as the closer to this album very well can you say a little about how that developed again was that just we're in the studio now feel how this energy goes because i could see if it happens once in a demo even reproducing that won't necessarily work in quite the same magical way i mean once again i, I really tip my cap to brad who's somebody that i'm going to continue working with and we're already talking about our next album and he is great at sticking to his guns i'm not gonna lie there are times where i was like is this too sparse this song and he said trust in yourself you know you wrote it this way and I'm so glad he's there to be the Aaron whisperer from time to time when I get a little antsy and feel like the audience might need more because they don't. I don't know, some woodblock over the entire song. That would. <laughs> <laughs> There's a total sparseness in this song and we put it at the end to let it breathe. But yeah, that buildup, what can I say? It really did come naturally out of playing live most of this album is live. All the rhythm tracks are live. So even this one, because I could see the other one, obviously, but this one, I could definitely see, okay, let's just lay down a piano thing and a click track and then figure out after the fact, or piano and drums or, but okay, so even the, you know, where the guitar was doing its big things were, you know, something that was at least developed, I won't say improvised, but developed in that fairly short time of the band gelling. A lot of it was improvised. I mean, the whole album only took six days to record. And like I said, the rhythm tracks took two days, you know, and there was no day that we recorded only one song. So everything was, I know this word is a bad word now because it's overused, but everything was truly organic and it seemed like the right thing to do then and there. And I think that having these guys that were in the room, having earnest intentions and laying it down translates at the end of the day. Failing to think of anything else about this song. Let's move on to the third one. <laughs> Let's get it out there. Then we can, maybe we'll finish quick enough that we'll have time to sort of reflect on the years between here. So we're going all the way back to your album with All Hours. Yes, Box sir. Box Office Stud. So 2004, is that right? Yeah, 2004. Tell us about this project. You got a definite, I put T-Rex or Sweet, some kind of 70s glam feel to this. I mean, in 2004, I think I still thought The Slider was the best album of all time. Ah. I was in that band and we were a glitter slash glam band, I suppose, in, in some ways. No makeup, but... <laughs> no, we had makeup, my oh, friend. okay. I saw a video. I didn't see any uh, sparkly multicolored hair or anything like oh, that. Oh, it was but... more subtle. I mean, we <laughs> knew what we were doing, but there was still a lot of guy liner uh, and foundation <laughs> to be had. Trust me. So 
We were playing in Los Angeles. We were playing the bar scene. We were playing at the Kibitz Room, which is in Cantor's Deli. So I say, meet me at the Deli of Love. It could not be more inside baseball than that. Nobody outside of that scene knew what the F I'm talking about. They thought I was a psychotic lush or a psychotic satyr or something like that. I was playing the role of that. And so that's what this song was about. Also, I'm going to give a little shout out to my friend Kennedy, whose music is great. And at the time, he was doing this music, which I thought, oh, yeah, that's pure. That's L.A.'s version of the Ramones. It's no bullshit. It's crass in a funny way with a huge sense of irony and humor. And he was, you know, just a couple years older than me and he was killing the scene. And I said to the guys, I want to do that. And when you're younger, you don't say, I want to do that and then do your own version of it, which is what I try to do now. You say, I want to do that. And you basically try to copy it. (laughs) Not to say that it sounds exactly like a Kennedy song, but that was what I was trying to do. I'm not going to lie about it. So you got a lot of the T-Rex elements. Is it the guys in the band who are doing those high, goofy? Yeah, and I I also want to give a shout out to the fact that we had this incredible opportunity to work with Joe Ciccarelli on that song. And he's engineered Frank Zappa, I mean, a million people. And he's a legend 
in engineering. He was the one that put those background vocals through a Leslie, for instance. And that was really awesome and cool. And it's myself and the bass player, Dean Moore, doing those flow and Eddie inspired background vocals, you know. So even that, like the initial sound you're using on your guitar there, that fat chorus sound, like again, is this part of the sound of the band or is this a recording addition? That was just double tracked. So it gets that chorus sound. That was a Rickenbacker that I was using as my primary guitar at the time. And yeah, I mean, we, we wanted that dirty I loved, loved, loved T-Rex at that time in my life. The Slider, Tanks, even more than Electric Warrior, those two albums. So we were just trying to go after that sound. I mean, that's why I I was saying sweet, because that's the only thing that's that old that I could think that has that treatment of the bass and drums. Like, it's obviously a very engineered, almost 80s sounding hugeness to really, you know, emphasize the the differences, you know, make the whole thing sound very big. Yeah, I mean, the song The Slider, for instance, from 1972 has that massive thing. Tony Visconti is so ahead of his time. And he gets blamed a lot for gated reverb that came became really famous in the 80s, but I'm sure he'll take it. <laughs> I thought that was Steve Lillywhite's fault, but that's <laughs> I'm sure, sure all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is very to the point. So lyrically, you're taking on a persona here. I'm a box office stud. The police report says I've been growing up. I mean, do you cringe at this now? Or is this still like, okay, this is a legitimate character study? When I was closer to it, <laughs> when I was making my second album, the just self-titled Aaron David Gleason EP, as it were, I did then. I thought this is silly and it's confection and it's frivolous. But I was shedding skins. Now, with this much time, I actually kind of love it, to be honest with you. And other people love it. So if other people want to have a good, carefree time, and they want to love this thing that I put a lot of time and energy into, I should get off of myself and just enjoy it because it doesn't have much bearing on me anymore. You know, I have a lot of distance and a lot of songs between Box Office Stud and myself now. So you know what? I totally enjoy it now. Is this now the encore song or the you know the thing where you might even just play an R&B standard, play a cover of some sort, but let's do this for the, the subsection of your audience that this holds a special place in their heart? You know what? From your lips to God's ears, uh, I would love to play this song as an encore. I would totally, totally love it. And I think the audience would too. You know, you can't be deathly serious at all times. You need to have everything at a show. So I wouldn't hesitate to play this song at a show ever. What fell short here? You said that you regarded your career. Was it after this or was it really after this band, you did your solo album and then after that, you weren't getting as much success as you wanted at the time and ended up moving. All Hours actually did very well in many ways. You know, we got signed. We were a really, really young band and we made a lot of young band mistakes. We never had a manager. (laughs) We managed ourselves. That might be an indication of some of the hubris that we had or lack of resources or wherewithal. All of the above, I would say. We did well. We got signed to a hybrid and Zamba and we were off and running. And the album, people didn't really know what to make out of it. It was from a cloistered environment. It didn't translate too much outside of the LA scene. Would it now? Yeah, I think a lot of people would love listening to that album. It's got a lot of charm, but that fell apart. Yeah, I was trying to remember when like the strokes got big because this, you know, very much sounds like exactly that same genre. There's no reason that you guys shouldn't have been playing on Saturday Night Live or whatever. 
It was exactly around that time. Uh, slightly after, but basically that we would have been honored to open for them or anything like even in that same breath trying to think of other bands but anyway yeah the strokes the white strokes they were all the hives the vines all of those yeah we loved that and so that fell apart and then i thought okay i want to do something more modern and i want to do something very me and i want to take it out of the studio so i put a studio in my house i got funky stuff like roland 808 machines Wurlitzer keyboards from the 60s, and I made my own thing using the cut and paste method. That was the Aaron David Gleason album, which is a collage style record. And nothing was sacred. No song could not be completely turned around. If you wanted to take this chorus and start the song with it, great. That's what we're going to do. That's what that was all about. And that had, I thought it was good. I thought it was strong, but it didn't really do anything. Uh, it got on a few publications. And, you know, I was also dealing with some personal stuff at the time and it just, it kind of fell apart. I moved to New York and in New York, people took my inventory like they had never done in LA. You know, you need to get better at this, this, and this in no unspecific terms. And I started over. Is this part of because you were doing musical theater stuff where it's much more, you know, you're auditioning and you're having people evaluate you and it's not like, oh, you're a rock and roll artist and either you're awesome or you suck and there's really no more constructive criticism I will provide to you. Yeah, you are exactly right. I got here and they were like, okay, you need to work on this, this and this with your singing. You need to work on this, this and this with your approach, even with your attitude. It was shocking. It was absolutely mind-blowing, and I am so glad that it happened. It made me a happier person in the end because I took more pride in my craft, and I had more understanding of it. With that background, let's pick out a few more pieces of Box Office Stud. It's quite a simple song, but you managed to, just like the build in Brooklyn at Dawn, you've got some sections in here where, okay, we're going back to basically the same chorus riff, but we're going to add some extra stuff. We're going to throw in some vocal howling. We're going to throw in some kind of crazy guitar swirling or piano swirling or something. So there's a couple different, this happens a couple different times. Let me just play the first one here about a minute and 13 in. So it's like you're trying to create this swirling vortex of, you know, throw in piano, which I assume piano was not part of your live setup. Yeah, you are assuming correctly. Okay, and then let's like add this really loud 16th note shaker thing and just some other stuff. And then and then when the same thing happens again, about two minutes in to end the song, you just ratchet it up another you know two levels beyond that. Do you remember enough about sort of what the studio setup was like, how this came together? I love production. I really, really, really love production. And... I'm a headphones guy. I always was, and I still am. And when I was younger, I may not have been terribly subtle about wanting to show you that, but that wasn't the medium and that wasn't the band. Subtlety was not the word of the day. I think we wanted to put those things in, the kitchen sink in, and we had license to do so, given the genre that we were working in at the time. Although I noticed it's still not a crazy, difficult Van Halen guitar solo spinning in there. The guitar is actually kind of buried and it's doing some lead things, but it's fairly subtle. You know, that can always be a matter of mix them down after the fact. But yeah, no, that's Joe Ciccarelli. He has incredible taste. He's a maniac and he was working on a really cool board. 
yeah, so many of my rock bands have been a bargain of like me and a lead guitarist and like you come and play my songs and be tasteful and then I will as frequently as I can feel that it is tastefully possible, uh, just let you go and show off all your licks because that's probably all you want to do anyway. Where <laughs> you're just fortunate enough that especially young people and even the drummer more so than the lead guitarist, it seems like you still, you guys had this sort of discipline that went into this. Did that translate into the live thing or was it a more ragged beast? No, uh, we were a well-rehearsed band at that time when we recorded that album. You know, we rehearsed five days a week. And people are not overplaying like hell. They're, it's all very serving the song. We were really against overplaying. And we were a really tight band, a tight unit. And nobody could be too wankery, pardon the phrase. And has that translated since then? I, you know, I wasn't listening through your, well, you call it an EP, but it, the version that's posted is like 20 songs, right? It's a bunch of things. You know, what you found is like a website that's defunct now, but I'm glad you found it, to be honest with you. It's just on Bandcamp. Anybody can find it. Yeah, no, I know. I, I got to figure out what's happening with that because there's two AaronDavidGleason.coms right now, but that's the old one. And I just decided to put like every demo on top of the self-released album on there. So you're hearing a lot of those things too, which are sketches and early versions of things or things that never made any album. I'm happy to have that out there. I would still release that in some form or another. So you said when you shifted to that, that became more of a playground for you to indulge in the arrangement stuff that you, as opposed to, oh, I'm not stuck to these guys, so let me get my friend who plays the trombone to come in. Like It's easy then to even let things escape from you if you sort of, I'm so happy to have guest musicians playing with me that I'm just going to kind of like, wow, I'll just trust your judgment on that and let you take this recording of the song. It seems like you kept more control than that. I like concise songwriting, you know, I'm just like a lot of people do. I have nothing against people that don't, <laughs> but that's just not my thing. Of course, I love the Beatles. Of course, I love Elvis Costello, and I love economy in songs. You know, Pink Moon is like a two-minute song, and you don't need more than What Is There by Nick Drake, and the piano only shows up once, and that's it. And I, so many people would say, oh, you got to bring that piano back, man. You're not just going to do that one time and leave it. And Nick Drake said, yeah, no, I'm going to do that. And an Elvis Costello song let's say it's like a, a minute and 50 seconds, like Motel Matches comes to mind. I think that song is like a minute, 50 seconds or two minutes. And it sounds perfectly long. And there's you never think of it as that short. Can you imagine turning in a minute and 50 second long song these days? People would think you're completely out of your mind or an A&R person or people that charge money to give songwriting conventions would say you cannot do that. And I beg to differ. Let's just pad it out with some whoa we oh we oh whoa we oh and like make that go for a while. That's and, very popular <laughs> these days. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it up by playing them something off this intervening album, uh, "Bright Lights." Is a 2010 date on the record? Where did this actual song come in? That this is on that EP, which came out in 2008, and it was funky. I get a lot of the Steely Dan comments on this song too. Well, and more so the singing. Like it's more. I I wrote Lenny Kravitz, but it's like high R&B singing, which is not what you do throughout. <laughs> no, I hardly do the same thing ever. But uh, no, I like it. It's a lot of fun. The chords move around in a really deceptive way, and I was happy about that. And uh, this. Very, very talented gentleman named Robert Davis was working on this with me. And it's just, uh, 
him and myself and uh, a drummer named David Pierabauer, and we put this together, just the three of us. All right, well, here it is, Bright Lights. Thank you, Eric David Gleason. Good luck with the album. I really appreciate it, Mark. It's been an honor to be on your show, man. Thanks to Aaron. You can hear more at AaronDavidGleason.com. And after this recording, Aaron joined me and Lucy Lawless and some people from the Broadway cast of Carousel to perform Aristophanes' play Lysistrata. You can get that right now at PartiallyExaminedLife.com. Aaron acts and sings. You can hear me act too. And I added a little bass and drums to his singing at the end. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this enough that you want to support the show and go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to do so. My next episode will be with Sarah McQuaid, 
an excellent guitarist and singer with a lot of traditional folk elements to her work. You can hear that and more by subscribing at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, or you can keep tabs on us by following us on Facebook or Twitter. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintzenmeyer signing off. Nobody could capture you as I was so afraid of the last of us.